Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. All the nations that ever went before us who turned their back on the Lord suffered a judgment ultimately. And so we and every other modern nation will at one point experience the same thing. And sometimes God lets people do what they want and then suffer the consequences of their actions. That's a good thing. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Amos, chapters 6 through 9. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Amos, chapter 6. So, we looked at the first five chapters last time, and we saw that one of the key themes of Amos is justice. And God is indicting Israel for their injustice. And kind of the main text, really, that just kind of encapsulates the entire prophetic word from Amos is that one found in the 24th verse of the fifth chapter. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. And man, what a, what a vivid picture that is. And that is what God desires for the nations. And that is what God will bring about when Jesus returns. And until then we're, in a sense, stuck with things just the way they are here in the time of Amos, where the rich oppress the poor, the strong oppress the weak, and it's kind of just the cycle of history. And yet, the promise is that it won't always be this way. So as we pick up in this chapter, once again, he's pronouncing a judgment upon, remember, the, the northern kingdom. So we, we said that the date of this prophecy is probably sometime around 750. And we also pointed out that in 721, the Assyrians came and destroyed the northern kingdom. So at this point, they're still living in luxury. They're still given over to total injustice and things like this. And they're resisting the prophet's call to repent. And as we know from history, they continue to do that until there was no remedy. So that's what Amos is continuing to address as we pick up in the sixth chapter. And 
he says, woe to you who are complacent in Zion. So here he includes Jerusalem, even though the, the judgment on Jerusalem will come sometime later. But then he moves right to those who feel secure in Mount Samaria. So Samaria was the, the capital of the, the northern kingdom. And I want you to see in verse 4, verses 4 through 6. So here's a description of their lifestyles. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful. And you use the finest lotions and you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. So it's just this opulence that they're living in, this extravagance, this excess when it comes to materialism and things. And they're doing this in the midst of all of this corruption and sin around them and not really thinking anything about it. It's just life goes on. We're having a good time. Let's party. And doesn't matter what's going on in the rest of the nation around us. So when he makes this reference here to the ruin of Joseph, Joseph is another name for the northern tribes of Israel. So it's, it's kind of like you could put it like the nation's gone to hell in a handbasket and the spiritual leaders don't care at all. They're too busy just indulging themselves. They're too busy just, you know, having a, a good time. And so this, this was the condition of the nation at the time. And so therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses and I will deliver up the city and everything in it. So again, this is just, you know, this happens over and over and over again to societies, to cultures, to civilizations. And, you know, this is where we are today. This is where most nations are today, just given over to corruption. And, and you, if you think about it in terms of the leaders, both the uh, political leaders and quite often it's the case as well that the spiritual leaders are doing the same things that everybody else is doing. And so the prophets, one of the things the prophets, of course, reminds us of is that this kind of stuff does not go unchecked. There is a point where God steps in and he judges. When does that happen? Well, we don't know. For Israel, God had them on a timeline and he had these prophets you know, telling them that this was coming. But for nations today, we don't know exactly when a judgment is coming. We know that there is a, a worldwide judgment that's coming in the future. But individual corrupt nations, when does God judge them? How does he judge them? It's difficult. We've talked about this before. It's difficult to say specifically this was a judgment from God. 
you know, say you have a, a nation that suffers a severe earthquake or a tsunami or, uh, you know, something like that, or a region of our country that is devastated because of a hurricane or something. The temptation is to say, oh, that's for sometimes for some Christians, the temptation is to say, that's a judgment of God. But then you have to ask the question, well, okay, if that's it, well, why didn't God judge this other place? Because this other place is actually just as wicked or more wicked than the place that we think he judged. So we don't know the details or the specifics of those things. This is what we know, that God will judge. And that's what these prophets remind us of, that all the nations that ever went before us who turned their back on the Lord suffered a judgment ultimately. And so we and every other modern nation will at one point experience the same thing. And sometimes judgment is, it's not so obviously coming from, say, the outside, but, it, but it's actually coming from corruption within. So God lets people do what they want, and then suffer the consequences of their actions. That, that's a judgment. I think that's the judgment that we are experiencing presently. So anyway, the sixth chapter, it, it's just going on dealing with the, the judgment that is going to come. So let's jump over into chapter seven. So this is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was, he was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested. And just as the late crops were coming up, when they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small, so the Lord relented. So God is, he's withholding his judgment. He's, he's not bringing it as swiftly as he might have. So he, the Lord relented, and this will not happen, the Lord said. Uh, this is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall, that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people, Israel. I will spare them no longer. So Amos is crying out to the Lord. The Lord is delaying the judgment, but he shows him a vision and the plumb line is set. In other words, all things have been accounted, all things have been measured, all things have been weighed out, and the judgment will come. And so I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed. The sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Now, I was talking to a fellow today, wonderful man. We, we just met him today. He came over to our house to give us an estimate on some work. And as we were talking, 
we ended up talking about kind of the state of the nation and the things that are going on. And he's a believer. And at one point, somehow we got onto talking about Isaiah and we got onto talking about the Old Testament prophets. And he said, man, yeah, like those Old Testament prophets, it's like, you know, people sinned and God just zapped them right then. And, you know, there was, so his question was kind of like, how come God's not judging today like he did back then? That was, that was sort of what he was saying. But in saying that, he was, he was expressing this idea that we sometimes have of the God of the Old Testament that he was quick to wrath. And he was just judging everybody right and left. And that's pretty much all he did. But, you know, that really isn't the case. We have to remember, you can read the Old Testament in a relatively short period of time. You could read the whole Old Testament in a week. I mean, you could read it quicker than that if you read fast. But let's just say it it took you a whole week to read the Old Testament. You're reading thousands of years of history. And, you know, we're reading, we're reading through it. We're thinking, here's a judgment here and here's a judgment. Wow, man, judgment. God, God is just a God of judgment. And then some people go to the, to the foolish conclusion that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different. The God of the New Testament is love and the God of the Old Testament was wrath. But if we stop and think, wait a second, I'm reading thousands of years of history. These judgments were actually... In, in some ways, they were few and far between. And the Lord was always not wanting to judge the people. He was always pleading with them to turn so he wouldn't have to judge them. And when he does judge them, it's because they refuse to respond to his offer of forgiveness. So that's how we have to remember. Because it's the Old Testament that tells us that the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's full of compassion. He's slow to anger. And so we have to let the scriptures be our lens through which we understand these kinds of things. And just keep that in mind that we're talking about a very long period of time. And so that's what we have here in the case with the nation of Israel. So verse 10, this gets really interesting because now Amos has, other than just the initial introduction, Amos has pretty much just been pointing, his message has been pointed toward the nation and the judgment that's coming. But now Amos tells us about some things that happened with him personally. And so then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Now, let me remind you, Bethel was the place where they had set up a false system. So under Jeroboam the first, remember we talked about that, there's Jeroboam the first, and he was the one who God gave the 10 northern kingdoms to Jeroboam, and he gave Judah and Benjamin to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So Jeroboam the first, God gives him the kingdom. But rather than trusting God, he doesn't want the people to to have to go to Jerusalem to worship because he's fearful that if they do, they will just all leave 
his kingdom and go into Judah. So he decides he's going to make an alternative place of worship. And so he sets up these golden calves, one in Dan in the far north of the country, and then here in Bethel. And in Bethel, he sets up a whole worship system. He sets up a priesthood. So this guy, Amaziah, is one of the priests at Bethel. So remember, God was very strict that the priesthood came through the Levitical tribe. And Aaron was the first priest. He was the high priest. His sons were priest after him. And the priesthood was very specifically declared by God to be exclusively for the descendants of Aaron. So when Jeroboam wants to put together a priesthood, he just invites anybody. Whoever you are, doesn't matter what your tribe, doesn't matter what your background is. You want to be a priest? Come on, you can be a priest in my system. So here's this guy, Amaziah, ruling over as a priest, ruling over this false worship system. And so he comes and he's going to challenge Amos. But this is what he says to Jeroboam. This is Jeroboam the second. He says, Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. So he comes to the king. He says, hey, this guy, he's right in your backyard and he is prophesying against you. And this is what he's saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. This is oftentimes what the prophets said. Remember Jeremiah, when the people came and they're worshiping at the temple and they would go into that beautiful structure that Solomon had erected and they, as they would walk in, they would say, oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And Jeremiah was standing there at the gate. Don't say the temple of the Lord because God's going to destroy this temple and he's going to destroy you. Not a real popular message (laughs) and nor was Jeroboam's message, real popular. So Amaziah now, he says to Amos, get out of here, basically. Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. So now this guy is, it's, you know, it's not just like some guy walking up on the street and saying, hey, get out of here. This guy has official authority from the king to come. So he probably has a delegation of military people with him to command Amos to leave and to go back to the land of Judah. Remember, he's from Tekoa. He's actually not from the northern kingdom. He's come from the southern kingdom to prophesy against the northern kingdom. Amos answered, this is, this is so great. Amos answered, Amaziah. Amaziah says, stop prophesying. He says, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go 
prophesy to my people Israel. Wow. So, so Amaziah is saying, stop prophesying. Amos is saying, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not even a prophet. But God sent me here. So in other words, I can't stop. God sent me to speak this message. But this is such a great reminder to us of, of how God works, how God puts his hand on a person and then uses them for his purposes. And that's something that we see, of course, from cover to cover in the Bible. That is basically the story that we have in the scripture of how God calls and gifts and empowers and uses people. And I bring this up because it's just important to remember that even though we go through training, if we're going to be, say, in pastoral ministry or something like that, you know, we go through training, we get educated, we do all of that stuff, and and that's all fine. But if that's all we did, then we would not have a ministry that would have any real impact or significance. Our ministry must be due to the call of God upon our lives. And it's not just a call of God to be like an Amos, like a prophet to a nation, but that call of God manifests itself in a thousand different ways. Do you know that people that teach children here, Sunday school teachers, you know, they do it out of a sense of a call from God on their lives. And that's exactly what happens. God will call you. Think about that. God will call you to go teach seven-year-olds and to impart to them the truth about God and, and love for God through your life and all of that. Isn't that amazing that, that God will do that? He will do that. And, you know, and he'll call other people to all different types of things. But I just want us to, to remember where sometimes we put, you know, it, it kind of, you get caught in, with two perspectives a lot of times. You get caught with one perspective that says, like, like for example, there are many churches in this country who, in looking for pastoral leadership, they will not even consider a candidate unless they have a master's of divinity. So it's, it's not even an option. You can't even fill out an application unless you have what they call an MDiv, short for master's of divinity. And then, so that, that's one side. And then you've got another side where it's like, well, hey, you seem like, you know, you might be pretty good. You got some charisma and you, you, can, you can speak all right. Well, let's make you a pastor. So neither one of these things are really exactly the way it is supposed to work. For the month of January, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled 
40 Days of Grace by Paul David Tripp. For many, the new year brings with it new resolutions for change and the prospect for achieving previously unattained goals. But when the routines of life resume, resolutions rarely last beyond even the first few months of the year. The intent of becoming a better version of ourselves usually ends in failure. But if you're a Christian, you have the ultimate hope. Grace has the power to do what nothing else, not even resolutions, can do. Grace has the power to rescue you from you. Grace has the power to restore you to what God created you to be. Only God's grace has the power to produce lasting change within your life. In his book, 40 Days of Grace, Paul David Tripp provides powerful vignettes on the transforming power of God's grace. That is the grace of God in the person of Jesus, who alone produces authentic, lasting change. This year, rather than resolutions, learn deeply about the transforming power of the grace of God. The book, 40 Days of Grace by Paul David Tripp, is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Amos. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.